0: Most of us sitting here or watching online uh, probably could not even imagine the dangers and the difficulties that those soldiers uh, endured during the First World War, lying in trenches, knowing the enemy was just a few hundred feet away from you. Uh, just waiting for you to lift your head just slightly too high uh, for the opportunity. And I imagine that as they spent most of their time in those trenches, they they spent a lot of time praying for peace, praying for the war to be over, praying for safety, for the conflict to end, so that they could go home and live in peace. And yet, on this very unusual Christmas day, we have this uh, reality of truce, this moment where two enemies come together and and share this special moment, this understanding of this few moments of external peace leads them to this understanding that peace is more than just the stopping of a conflict on the outside. There has to be something that happens on the inside. And he says that peace or Christmas is not the thing of peace, that Jesus is the peace that's coming, that Christmas is the promise that Jesus will begin peace or bring peace to the whole world when the time is right. This morning we're focused on the second week of Advent and we're focused on peace. And we live in this time where we are here but not yet there. We live in a time where peace is available to us both externally and internally. uh, But we are not realizing what full peace looks like. We are not yet to the point where Jesus is going to bring peace to the whole world. He has brought peace to us internally and the option for that. But we are awaiting a time when, the, and when all is right, the peace will be external. And so we find ourselves, just like in the Old Testament, waiting and anticipating this time of peace and praying for peace to happen. And so this morning as we're in Psalm 85, uh, verses 4 through 11, We're going to be looking at this idea of peace, and I'm praying that many of you will find peace through the Scripture and through Christ this morning. So if you've got your Bibles in Psalm 85, verses 4 through 11, we've been going through the book of Hebrews, but through Advent, we're really focusing through some of the Psalms and these songs of Christmas. And so uh, these are not necessarily Christmas songs that you're going to sing on a normal basis, but uh, Psalm 85, starting in verse 4, reads like this, Return to us, God of our salvation, And abandon your displeasure with us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger for all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your faithful love, Lord, and give us your salvation. Verse 8, I will listen to what God will say. Surely the Lord will declare peace to His people, His godly ones, and not let them go back to foolish ways. His salvation is very near those who fear Him, so that glory may dwell in our land. Faithful love and truth will join together. Righteousness and peace will embrace. Truth will spring up from the earth, and righteousness will look down from heaven. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank You so much that we stand in a time where truth and mercy have met God, that we stand in a time where righteousness and peace have embraced. God, this morning, when we look at our world, we don't see a world of peace. God, as we look across the world and across even our towns, and uh, God, even in our own lives, many of us would not define ourselves as engaged in peace. Just overwhelmed by it. And so, God, I pray in these moments as we look through your Scripture, I pray that you will speak to us. God, I pray that we will find the peace amidst all the conflicts that we have internally and externally. God, I pray that we will look to the one source that can bring peace and calmness and stillness and completion to all that hinders us. And so, God, I pray in this moment that you will speak peace to us. God, I pray that you will declare your peace to us Just as You did on that very Christmas morning. God, let us find peace in who You are and what You've done and in Your Savior, Jesus Christ. So God, I pray that You speak in a mighty way. And I pray, God, that we will be ready to listen to You. God, with expectation, with anticipation, knowing what Your words will be. So God, speak. Let us listen. And let us embrace what it is that You have for us this morning. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. On February 1st of this year, Anne Rose New Twang, and I'm sure I'm probably mispronouncing her name, her world changed drastically. See, uh, Sister Anne is a Catholic nun that lives in Myanmar, um, and she uh, runs a health clinic there in Myanmar. And uh, the place she lives, the area she lives and works, has been relatively quiet. That was until February 1st, and on February 1st, the military of Myanmar took over the government, overthrew the government, which was a a democratically elected government, and so they overthrew this government, arrested all the officials, and and as you can imagine, if that happened in in, in most any nation, the people of Myanmar were not very happy about it, and still today, they're not very happy about it, and so they began to um, kind of build these protests, and so they started small with just a few people gathering in the streets and kind of chanting Wanted their freedom. They wanted their government back. And uh, the crowds began to grow. The number of people began to grow. The the number of uh, uh, protests themselves began to grow. And so the military decided that they had to take a firm stance on this. They really had to crack down on these protesters. And they were going to come down on them pretty hard. They started imposing curfews. They they, uh, stopped the internet from working so that folks couldn't um, connect with each other. They banned gatherings of any kind of people in the street. And so if people were gathered in the street, they were. Were put on notice that you have so many moments to disperse or we will sh- uh, use tear gas or we'll use rubber bullets or we'll use le- lethal force. You have to disband. You cannot gather here in the streets for what you are doing. And so Sister Ann's clinic quickly went from treating colds and infections to treating eye irritations, deep tissue bruising, and even gunshot wounds. Her clinic became a refuge for many of the wounded protesters and even many children who found themselves in that situation. Describing the chaos in the situation, Sister Ann said that every day they heard gunshots. She said that our, riv- our roads are rivers of blood. In fact, our clinic floor became a sea of blood and finally she had had all that she could take of it she had seen all the bloodshed and all the loss of life that she could take and so she uh, she accredits being filled with the Holy Spirit to this but she, she took a very bold stance as the uh, there was a crowd of protesters gathering in the street and there was of course the, the army the military police coming towards them she walked out in the middle of the two and she stood in the middle of the two and then she got down on her knees with her arms stretched out wide pleading for peace pleading for the The police not to do anything, pleading for them to stop. She begged the police, don't hurt the protesters. Don't treat them badly. Treat them kindly like family members, she said. If you must kill someone, then kill me, but let them live in peace. And as they told her to get up and get out of the way, they had a job to do. Her simple reply was, I will not leave my knees. I will not leave this spot until you promise that you will not hurt these protesters anymore. And so she stayed there on her knees, kneeling in prayer, begging for peace to happen, until two police officers got down on their knees and joined her in prayer and peace and pleading for peace together. And she got up and went back to her clinic to do her work and as she stayed praying begging and pleading for peace to return to the country she loved and uh, as I read through Psalm 85 I almost picture the author of this psalm and we don't know who it is uh, we almost uh, we can almost kind of picture him taking the exact same position the circumstances are vastly different when he writes this but I can almost picture him as he writes this psalm pleading and begging and praying for peace in the exact same position down on his knees arms outstretched Begging and pleading for peace to return to this nation he loves, and what's interesting about this psalm is, like I said, we don't know who wrote it. It doesn't tell us not a psalm of David, uh, but our and we don't know exactly when it was written. None of the psalms are dated. This is the date that I wrote this or anything like that. But our best guess is based on the first couple chat or verses of it is that this psalm is written after the Babylonian exile. Right, so some of you may understand that, but the Babylonian exile is that the. Uh, uh, the Babylon had come in and taken over Judah um, and Israel and moved the smartest, best people out, right? They took them captive for years and took them over to Babylon. And so after years of being in captivity, they were released. They were allowed to go back into their pro- their promised land, their homeland. And so our best guess is, based on the context of this passage, that this psalm is written after they were allowed to go back. So they're back in their promised land. They're back where they should be. They're back in the, the physical place they were wanting to be. But as they're standing there, kind of in this beautiful homeland that they've always wanted, kind of rebuilding things, are almost finished rebuilding, but they notice that something is still not right. Something is still not correct it, it, it's looking like it is but it's not fitting together something is not complete here and this is where we have to understand their idea of peace is very different than our idea of peace because when we talk about peace we simply define it as an absence of a conflict right so we think of if, if there's not war going on then we are at peace if, if there's not neighborhoods that are full of violence and murders happening, then then we are at peace And that's how we define peace. We actually define it as an absence of something else. There's not conflict, then we live in peace. But the Hebrew understanding and the Jewish understanding, even to this day, is peace is much, much broader and deeper than that. You see, peace in the Hebrew language is this word uh, shalom. And it's a very common word, even amongst Jews today. In fact, it is their greeting when they meet someone. or When they greet someone, they don't say hello and they don't say goodbye. They will simply say shalom. Right? And, and so they're not telling you, hey, I hope you don't get killed on the way home today. I'm, I'm, I hope you, you don't have misfortune. I, that's not what they're telling you. They're actually giving you a blessing. And a blessing of completion. A blessing that, of, of everything fitting together. They're, they're giving you this blessing That hoping everything in your life is whole and fits perfectly as it is. That there's this sense, this state of mind that everything is right in place, exactly as it should be. Now, I'm not a huge puzzle worker, right? Some people are puzzle workers. My wife, my kids, they love to put together puzzles. I don't really have the patience to put together a puzzle unless it's like one of those like five-piece puzzles, and maybe I can I can do those. But we we had uh, over the quarantine and all that time, we had some time to work some puzzles, and some of you are puzzle people and you love these huge thousand piece puzzles and when you get them all and you dump them all on a table and then you start putting them together piece by piece and this one fits right here and this one fits right there and finally you get down to that last piece all 999 of them are in the right place and there's one piece that you're holding in your hand that when you put it exactly where it was designed to be all of a sudden the picture is there and everything is beautiful. And everything fits together. And some of you experience experienced that. And some of you are trying to figure out what I'm talking about. Because you're not puzzle people. And that's okay. But that moment when you put that last 1,000th piece in that puzzle. And everything fits together. And you're just like, that's shalom. That's shalom. Peace. That is completion of everything that was broken and shattered apart. That is wholeness. Everything coming together. So if you're not a if you're not a puzzle piece uh, per, or a puzzle person and some of you are car people, then think about the time when the car that you were working on, you couldn't get it started and there was just one little thing that just wasn't right and all of a sudden you fixed it. Maybe it was the timing belt or something like that and you just fixed this one little thing and all of a sudden that baby fired up and it sounded better than it ever did before. And you're just like yeah, that's Shalom. That's peace. When all the pieces are working together, when there's harmony in the inside and outside, when there's wholeness and everything is exactly as it's meant to be, that is what peace looks like. That is what shalom is. And so when the writer of, he, or the writer of Psalm, in, in all of the Hebrew language, when they write about peace, that's what they're talking about. And so the writer of this Psalm, everything on the outside is falling into place nicely. We didn't read the first three verses, but they can talk about the... the um, uh, the pro- uh, prosperity of Jacob and, and the favor of the land. So everything on the outside is falling into place beautifully. Everything is perfectly going like it's supposed to be on the outside. They're, they're back in their land. They're back home. There's not war. There's not major conflict going on. But still there's something missing. They've got all the border pieces of their puzzle, but there's still a piece that's not right And so I want you to look back with me in verse 4 and hear this guy pleading to get that moment. Get that sense of peace back. In verse 4, he cries out, "'Return to us, God of our salvation.'" You see, God, you've already saved us from this enemy over there. You've already saved us from this foreign land, and we're we're so thankful for that. But there's still something not right. There's still something missing. We still don't have this right relationship with you, God. Yeah, we're here, and everything looks on the outside like it should be right, but something is still broken here. There's still this divide between you and us. There's still this division between God and, and us, and this division is worse than any army that's ever held us captive. And so, God, we're pleading with you. Come back to us. In verse 4 and verse 5, he kind of gives this idea of why he thinks this divide exists. In verse 4, he pleads with God to return to them. But he also says, Abandon your displeasure with us. And he goes on in verse 5. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger for all generations? The writer He's telling us that he believes this division is there because he believes that God is angry with them. That they have continually turned their backs on God. They have continually disobeyed Him. They've continually sinned. They've continually gone against the commands or disregarded the commands that He had for them. And so God is angry with them. And because He is angry and not wanting to destroy them, He pulls back from them he's distanced himself from them and so they're they they don't have the protection of god they used to have they don't have the relationship with god you see this is the division that that sin causes as long as there's this distance as long as there's this gap between us and our creator there will never be peace for them on the inside like they're hoping for and the truth is there'll never be peace for us on the inside as long as there's this wall of division or this gap between us and the God who created us. When we read on in verse 6, he makes this pretty clear. He cries out, God, will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? This word revive is kind of an interesting, it is, it is a simple word. It simply means to bring back to life. It is exactly what you would expect. Bring us back to life. Which first is acknowledgement that we are Dead. That on the inside there is nothing inside of us that we are empty that we are, we feel like there's nothing that we are lifeless. God, we got this land, we've got the riches, but without you on the inside we are dead. And so physically we might be alive, but on the out, on the outside, but on the inside we are dead. There is no peace in this situation. There's no shalom in this situation. There's no harmony when you look alive on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. There's not harmony in being rich on the outside, but being poor and broken on the inside. And so understand this guy is crying out for the outside and the inside to fit back together. And some of you know exactly what that feels like this morning because some of you may be sitting here, some of you may be watching online, and you may be feeling that exact same way. That if somebody's looking at your life from the outside, man, it looks like it's all together. You, you even get po- folks who walk up to you and be like, man, I don't know how you do it. Your family is just the most beautiful family ever. Like you had your Christmas decorations up. You've got the most beautiful Christmas tree in all the world that I've ever seen. And some of you, like you, your house is clean, your cars are clean. And so people on the outside looking in, you're like, man, I just wish I could be that person. Yet on the inside, you are broken and there's emptiness on the inside. And you are putting up this whole facade on the outside that everything is perfect on the outside. But on the inside, you know that there is no harmony at all. Because if they could see on the inside, it would be a very different picture. You'd be just like this writer of Psalm that on the inside, you are feeling lifeless. That you are feeling empty. And there's not peace and harmony in your life. And it may look like it from the outside. And may everybody else on the outside may think that you have it all together. But if they could see... On the inside. They would see this brokenness and this shattered relationship that you have, and this brokenness and this this emptiness that you have. And so if that's you this morning, I want you to take a moment and just breathe a deep breath with us because the writer of of this psalm spends the rest of his time directing us back to a place where we can find peace. And so if you're here this morning and you feel like there's just not harmony in your life, you're broken and on the inside you've got kind of this this distance between you and something that you're looking for, then hold on because the rest of this psalm is going to show you exactly where to find it. And the first place he says you can find it is in God's presence itself. See, this is where the Advent part comes into play and where He is waiting and anticipating for something to happen. I want you to look with me in verse 8. And He starts it off and He says in verse 8, I will listen to what God will say. Now there's a whole lot more to that verse and there's important stuff later in that verse. We're going to come back to that, but I want to pause here for just a moment. And this is going to be a little rabbit trail we're going to run down because there's something amazing in this part of this verse. And simply this, I will Listen, how often do we spend time in our prayers doing what this guy says he's going to do? If we're honest about our prayer life, most of us spend 99.9999% of our prayer lives talking. All right? And when we may be talking about important stuff. We may be asking for important stuff. We may be pleading. We may be begging. We may be asking for all this great stuff. And I'm not even saying any of that's bad. We may even spend time being thankful for all that God has done for us. But if we're true and honest, maybe even 98% of our prayer is simply that we are talking and we're sending these messages out to God. And I want to ask you, when was the last time that you ever stopped and listened for God's response? See, the last time that we prayed... How many of us really got quiet in that prayer time? See, if you're like most of us, we say this list of prayers and we'll pray. We'll thank God for things and we'll ask for all these things. And we say amen. We get up, we pack up our stuff and we go about our day. And we never stop to listen. When was the last time that we prayed and then we got really quiet? When was the last time that we prayed and we got really quiet because we expected God to answer and and we just listened for God to answer our prayers? When was the last time that prayer drove us to His Word so that we could hear the answers of our prayers? When was the last time that that we honestly prayed uh, about all this stuff and then we just sat down and we listened and we settled down and we got quiet and we went to God's Word and we said, "All right, God, here I am. I'm just going to listen now. I find that we learn a whole lot more by listening than we do by talking. And so sometimes maybe we need to end our prayer not by, by saying amen, but just by being quiet and letting His Word and listening to what He has to say to us. Like I said, that's a rabbit trail. And that's a side note. It's an important one, but I want to move on with verse 8 because, because sometimes we just need to listen. And he says in verse 8, I will listen to what God will say, surely the Lord will declare peace to his people, his godly ones, and not let them turn back to the foolish ways. You see, there's this this whole thing of Advent about expecting and anticipating what God is going to do, and you can see it, you can hear it in that verse. I'm going to listen because I know that He's going to declare peace. I know that He's going to do something, and so I'm just going to wait for it. And I'm just going to listen for it, and this is what Advent is all about. I know that God is going to do something. He's going to do something great. And I've just got to wait for it. And I'm going to wait with anticipation. I'm going to wait with expectation that he's going to do this. In Psalm 85, the thing that he's anticipating is peace. He's anticipating this peace. And he's actually anticipating that when God comes and God returns, he will bring peace. He will declare peace. Peace to us. You see, what he's looking for is he's looking for God to return, to come to us. What he's anticipating is what many of us now know in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. He's anticipating Emmanuel. He's anticipating God with us because that is where peace is is in His presence. You see, this is the message He's anticipating in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, when the heavenly hosts pull back the the garments of heaven, the, the disguise and curtains of heaven, and they say to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to people He favors. This is what He's waiting for. This is what He's hoping for. This is what He's anticipating. God is going to bring peace to us and He's going to do it through His presence and it's going to happen on this beautiful Christmas day. And I want you to notice it goes on in verse 9. He says, His salvation is very near to those who fear Him, so that glory may dwell in our land. Again, peace is looking and He's coming and he's it's coming when the glory of God dwells in the land and that's what happens on Christmas. So I told you that we've been looking through the book of Hebrews and we started that study months ago, but I want you to remember we talked about the glory of God in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It says that Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. making After making purifications of sin, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Did you hear that? He is the glory of God. What he's anticipating is what you and I are celebrating in just a few weeks from now. What he's anticipating and looking forward to is this peace that's coming and this peace that's going to be on all the world because it is his presence. See, peace was declared when the glory of God, the Son of God, dwells in the land and there is peace in his presence. But I want you to notice something else. as We're going to jump back to verse 8 for a moment. This peace is not unconditional. This peace is conditional on this thing that we call repentance. Turning away from our old ways. I want you to see how he ends verse 8. It says, Do not let them go back to foolish ways. See, foolish ways are when we turn our back on God and we turn towards sin. Foolish ways or when we think that we have a better plan and we have a better path than God does. Foolish ways or when we are arrogant enough or confident enough in ourselves that we don't need God anymore. We don't need God for salvation. We don't need God to tell us how to rule our lives or run our lives. We don't need God to direct us. We don't need God to protect us. We can do it all on our own. You see, that's where Israel was at. That's where Judah was at. They had forgotten their God. They had forgotten that God could save them and would save them if they would follow His ways. And so they made their own path. They charted their own territories. And it led to this foolish way of believing they could do it all on their own. And that was foolish. And so while he is anticipating this peace that comes with Christmas, he's praying that Israel will not reject Him when He comes He's praying that Israel will not fall back into their own foolish mindset. They, they won't fall back on this idea, we don't need God, we can do this all on our own. And so God, don't let us fall back into this foolishness. Let us turn away from that. Let us turn back to you. Anticipate that there is peace coming, but when it comes, we need to be ready for it. And so don't fall back to your foolish ways. See, this repentance allows us to remain with God and in peace in His presence. It's what allows us to keep from turning our backs on him and back to our foolish ways. You see, but repentance is only available to all of us through the work of Christ. You see, the last thing he tells us about peace in this passage is that it is restored through Christ and through the works of Christ. You see, we live, or we once lived, in perfect peace with God. You can go back and read in the book of Genesis when God created everything and he created man and woman and created all the, the creatures and he created all and he pronounced it all good. And there are times in Scriptures where it tells us that He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. That they walked together and they talked together. There was no separation. There was no anxiety between any of them. That they walked and they enjoyed each other's presence. And they enjoyed the peace that was there. They enjoyed the sense of completion and wholeness. That it was all good and it all fit together perfectly. And then one day we decide to chart our own path. One day we decide to break the rules. And we can be like God knowing good and evil. And one day we did the one thing that He told us not to do. And so sin entered this picture and all of a sudden that connection was cut. All of a sudden there's not peace with God and we are now enemies with God because we are fighting against Him because we have our own plan and we know better than Him. And so the only way to restore peace with God is through the work of Christ on the cross. This is where the wrath and mercy meet together. And in verse 10, Uh, Of this psalm, the writer describes it in this way. He says in verse 10 faithful love and truth will join together righteousness and peace will embrace, and what he does in this passage, this verse, is he sets up these two sets of opposites of each other, and kind of like this, this kind of courtroom scene. And over here we have the prosecutors, and the prosecutors are truth and righteousness. Over here are the prosecutors who tell you that you are guilty, and they tell you of every account that you are guilty of. The, the, over here are the prosecutors that tell you every time you have disobeyed, they've kept a record and they've kept a list of every sin that you've ever committed and I've ever committed. And over here is every. Time Time you have committed a sin and here's the punishment you deserve. Every time I've disobeyed God is written down in their books and they're ready for it and they're crying out for justice. They're crying out for judgment. They're crying out for, for punishment in the most severe form in every offense. That is truth and that is righteousness. It is over here and it is the prosecutors of this case. He says, but there's another side. On the other side of the courtroom is this defense team. And the defense team goes by the name of faithful love, which is translated also as mercy and peace. And see, for this defense team, it's a little different because notice the defense team is never arguing that I'm not guilty because the judge already knows that I am. That my guilt to my innocence is not the question of this courtroom scene. We are beyond that. The guilt has already been established We are now in the sentencing phase of the trial, if you will. Now the simple question is not whether I'm guilty or innocent. The simple question is how severe is my punishment going to be? And so mercy and peace's job is really not to get me off. It's really to seek leniency and really to seek forgiveness. It's to cry out that maybe there should be a little bit of leniency in this punishment. Maybe there was something that we shouldn't get punished for. Now these are two sides and they've always been opposite of each other. They've always been opposed to each other and they sit on different sides and they never come to a place of meeting except one time. There's one place where all these places or all these people are satisfied and it's the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the cross is where faithful love and truth join together. The cross is where righteousness and peace embrace. It is the justice of God is satisfied through the sacrifice of Christ and it's where mercy of God is poured out for all of us. And Christ is the only sacrifice that can make this happen because He's the only connection between heaven and earth. That's what He talks about in verse 11 when He says that truth will spring up from the earth and righteousness will look down from heaven. Christ sprang up from the earth because He was born just like you and I. He was 100% human just like you and I, but He looks down from heaven because He's 100% God for all of eternity And so He is this perfect marriage of heaven and earth. He is the place where righteousness and peace embrace each other. He is the place, and the cross is the place where faithful love and truth join together. The classic commentator Matthew Henry puts it this way, and he puts it beautifully. He says, Christ as mediator brings heaven and earth together again when sin had set them as opposites. Though through Him truth springs out of earth, and truth which God desires in the innermost parts, and then righteousness looks down from heaven, for God is just, and the justifiers of those who believe in Jesus. And he goes on to say, the great affair of our salvation is so well conceived and so well concerted that God may have mercy upon poor sinners and be at peace with them without any wrong to His truth and His righteousness. You see, it is at the cross of Christ that righteousness and peace meet and embrace. It's the cross of Christ where peace with God can be restored through the work of Christ. He is the peace that God declared on Christmas and finished on Easter. But it started all with this child that Psalm 85 was anticipating. I want to finish with one last story that I read this past week. And I'd never heard this story before, but in 1962, there was a missionary couple called Don and Carol Richardson. And they had lived in Indonesia in relatively isolation. And they lived amongst these very difficult tribes. And, and the tribes were actually known as headhunters. They were actually known for cannibalism. They were known for, for trying to kill each other and, and destroying each other's tribes. Even though they were all kind of one nation, they, they fought amongst each other in these different tribes. And so they, this missionary couple kind of found their place in this, little, uh, this, in this huge area. And oddly enough, because the, the tribes were curious about this missionary couple, two of them kind of set up camp just right outside of their homestead. All right, so they have their little homestead, this little clearing. And so one tribe moves in on this side, and the other tribe moves in on this side. And they're so curious, they want to be close to this missionary, but not really convert. and they don't, they, don't want to, they don't want to give anything to him. And so Don had become completely frustrated with his inability to really make contact with these people. that They had been there for 14 years, and all they saw was civil war over and over and over. And it happened right in their front yard. This tribe hating this tribe and this tribe doing everything they could to get back to this tribe. And so for 14 years, Don and his wife Carol, they watched civil war and bloodshed just right on their front yard every single year as these two tribes tried to live there together. And eventually they decided, we can't live here anymore. It's time for us to leave. And so they began to talk with some of the tribesmen. And the tribesmen were curious enough, they wanted to know enough about these people, but not enough to know about their Jesus, that they said, no, 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 you can't leave. Our times have been good together. And the Richardsons are scratching their head, and like, it's been 14 years of war. I don't know how in the world you describe that as good. And so, no, 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 you can't leave. We don't want you to leave. If you stay, then tomorrow we promise we will make peace together. And so the next morning, the Richardsons woke up and they were kind of skeptical about this whole thing. They had seen wars beyond all measure and they just couldn't figure out how this was going to work. What was it that was going to bring these two tribes that have been killing each other and slaughtering each other and and, and cannibalizing each other for 14 years? What would be possible that could bring these two tribes together? So the Richardsons walked out the next morning and there across the fields were both tribes. This one lined up this way, and this one lined up that way. And they thought, this is going to be just like every other day. Here, any moment, they're just going to clash, and they're just going to fight, and they're just going to battle it out again. And why are we even staying here? For 14 years, we've had no success reaching these folks with the gospel. And as they stood there watching these two tribes lined up, ready for battle, they noticed something different. One of the tribesmen on this side ran in backwards and instead of running forwards to the battle. He ran in backwards to his house. And he reached into his house and he grabbed his baby's son and he came running back out and the husband was running across towards the other tribe. And the wife running behind him pleading, no, 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 bring my son back. Bring my son back. And this agony of this father's face and this agony of the wife running behind him screaming, please give me my baby back. And the husband didn't stop. He ran all the way to the chief of the other tribe. And he put his baby out like this. He said, plead the peace child with me. I give you my son and I give you my name. And he stood there for moments, holding out his child as the peace child. And all of a sudden, a man from this tribe ran into his tent and went and grabbed his child. And the exact same scene followed. His wife falling behind him, screaming, please, please, no, no, no. And he walked over to the tribe and he said, please, plead the peace child with me. And the two men exchanged children that day. And this agonizing sacrifice and this intense passion that was happening later, the Richardson found out this was the moment of peace that was promised to them. Because as long as these two children were alive, the tribes were bound to be at peace with one another. There was no way to break the peace as long as these two children were alive. So while this amazing scene unfolded, Don suddenly realized this is the picture of of Christ that I've waited 14 years to share with these tribesmen. This is the picture of a God who runs and grabs his baby son and brings in and says, here is my offering of peace. Will you take it and will you live with peace with me forever? So he gathered the leaders of both tribes and he began to share with them, there is one peace child the perfect peace child to Jesus and eventually all of the tribes kind of became Christians and followers of Christ. And he says several years later, on Christmas Day, hundreds of both tribes that had been warring and cannibalizing each other for years gathered together to celebrate Christmas. The pastor stood up and he read in his long language of scripture. And few people have understood as clearly as they did that day. Simply unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Don Richardson later wrote that that was the best Christmas that he had ever experienced in his life. It was the best day those two tribes have ever known. You see, peace comes in the form of a, ma- a child in a manger, but He comes the gift on the cross. And If you're missing peace this morning, if you're looking in the midst of chaos and all it feels like you're a thousand-piece puzzle and just a million different pieces everywhere, then there is one peace child who can bring it all back to the place it's supposed to be. If you're missing peace this morning, it doesn't come from Christmas. It comes from the Christ who died on the cross. Let's pray together.